UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. So I hit my logo, intro. We're recording. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have another fascinating guest with me today. Today we're going to be talking about shapeshifters. I have with me John Kachuba. He's the award-winning author of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. His fiction includes two novels, Dark Entry, a paranormal novel, and The Savage Apostle, historical fiction. He's published two-volume collection short stories titled There Comes a Season and has written numerous articles for poems and a variety of magazines, journals, and newspapers. John's most recent work of nonfiction, Shapeshifters, a history, that's what we're going to be talking about today, was published in June 2019 and was the finalist at the Horror Writers Association Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Nonfiction. Several other works of nonfiction are about ghosts and the paranormal, human writing, Native American history and culture, and the occupational safety and health. John holds a master's degree in creative writing from Antioch University and Midwest and Ohio University and presently teaches creative writing at Ohio University in the Gotham Writers Workshop. In addition to his present work, he's been a journalist and freelance book editor. John is a member of the Historical Novel Society, Horror Writers Association, and the American Library Association for Authors and Libraries. John is a frequent speaker at conferences, universities, libraries, and on podcasts, radio, and TV. His website is www.johnkachuba.com. That's J-O-H-N-K-A-C-H-U-B-A.com. And I want to give him a big, warm welcome to the show. John, thank you for coming back on my show. How are you? Good, Rob. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we, we, we got finally got to do this again. Um, I'm going to just start off with talking about shapeshifters. Like, you know, kind of what sparked your interest for writing this, this, this one? Well, it actually stems from my work with ghosts. Um, I do a lot of public speaking and, and things like this, podcasts and everything else. And often people would tell me their stories, you know, their ghost stories. And some of the stories that I was hearing, um, they would describe the entity that they were seeing or whatever, and it didn't quite sound like a ghost. It sounded more like what I consider sort of a classical shapeshifter. So because I was hearing so much about this, I just started to do some research on my own and just opened up a, a whole treasure trove of uh, shapeshifter lore and stories from all around the world. And basically, the bottom line is that there is at least one, if not several, kinds of shapeshifter characters in almost every culture around the world. Uh, and they date back as far as like the Neolithic times, some of the earliest evidence of 
uh, supposed shapeshifters goes back that that early to eight, you know cave paintings of shapeshifters. So it was just it was fascinating. Once that door opened, I was you know I was going down it. It's really, it really is fascinating because it makes me think about like, like what people are actually seeing when people are having paranormal experiences. It makes me think, well, what are people experiencing? Are they experiencing a ghost or are they experiencing something like a shapeshifter? And is that kind of what you're getting at? Like people are experiencing more of the shapeshifter as compared to the uh, regular ghost or apparition type entity? I, I don't know if I can make any comparisons into one being more than the other. But I do think that there are some uh, more shape-shifting, perhaps, elements out there than, than we think. Uh, and maybe some of the things that we are considering to be ghosts or calling, calling those entities ghosts, they might be something different. They might not be ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, what, what, what do you, what do you think? I was going to ask you this later, but like, what do you think defines a ghost? Like, because, you, okay. I'll just say this, like you have those like residual type ghosts. It seems like that, like it, it's like, a, it seems like it's like a tape playing over and over again, you know? And then you have like a, almost like an intelligent ghost that can kind of respond back to you. Or, or it seems like, um, have you had experience with both of these and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the first type you're talking about, they sometimes call that a residual haunting. And it's it's truly, it's not really an entity, according to, you know, what we are guessing at, since nobody really knows. But it's more, uh, it's more the idea of psychic impressions that were sort of left in the environment, almost like a, like a toxin, like lead in the water will do something to the water. So this is something where they, where we think that maybe the psychic energy of some, some event or, you know, some some tragic event probably uh, may have created uh, a disturbance, if you will, in sort of the psychic energy of that area. So that what we're seeing with these residual hauntings is not really a real spirit or entity that we can inter interact with as much as we're getting an image. It's like watching a movie and it simply plays over and over again. It's only energy. And at some point that energy is going to dissipate uh, you know, energy is not constant, but it can be changed into other forms, right? So at some point, it's going to just change into something else, and it won't be there anymore. That's why when people talk about some of these ghosts, like in England, or some of these, you know, Scotland, these castle ghosts, they'll say, well, for hundreds of years, people saw a ghost walking across the courtyard, holding his head, you know, uh, holding his head under his arm. And then after a while, people say, well, we're not seeing it anymore. And then finally, no one's talking about it, because it's gone. And those are residual hauntings. But the other one that you're talking about is more, you know, interactive. That's depending, again, on what you think a ghost might be. That could actually be the um, psychic remnants, the psychic remains of a person who, for whatever reason, is still here on this plane, this level of existence, and is able to communicate with us if we are able, have sort of the, the ability to communicate with that. So there's, uh, yeah, there's different differences. And nobody really knows what a ghost is obviously um if we did we you know we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it right now yeah it seems like we never get any clues as to what the afterlife is like like it seems like like people will get people can get i'm trying to fix my camera it seems like people can get like answers from ghosts but the ghost never wants to tell them what the afterlife is like like you know and yeah. i've even messed around with spirit boxes before i i don't i can't say that i've ever gotten anything like really um poignant you know, but like, right. have you ever gotten any communication with a, with an entity or a ghost? 
Um, not that kind of communication, only communication in the sense of, uh, you know, saying something to an empty room. Like if you're here, you know, knock on the wall or knock on the door or something like that and getting that kind of a physical response. Um, I've, I too have played around with some of the, um, you know, spirit boxes and things like that. Um, I haven't been overly impressed with them, but I haven't done a lot of work with those. Uh, I think they're subject to a lot of error and I think a lot of subjective opinion, you know, because we can talk about it. I have one right here I wanted to show the audience. Like, uh, just to, to prove what we're saying, like, this is, it, it almost gets a little bit, sometimes it can get annoying. Cause, like, I'll just show you, like, I did turn this on. And if you can see it, if you can see it right there, it's, it's just a, it's just a radio. And, um, and, and, and you're supposed to sweep, like, back. I'll put it up, show it up there again. It's, it's, you just sweep, like, left and right. But then it's so hard to, cause, like, when you're sweeping left and right, it's like, it's, it's hard to say, like, what, um, you're hearing because you could be hearing voices from the radio. You know what I mean? So it's hard to say, did you, did you ever have experience with one of these? This one's a P uh, PSB seven spirit box. And I'm not doubting the spirit box at all. I'm just saying it's very hard to get anything like concrete out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And I haven't had um, experience with that particular model that you're holding there, but and to your point, it could be radio. I mean, you could be picking up police scanners and shortwave radio and things like that. And, you know, you pick up a word and somebody says, oh, well, he said Bob and there's a Bob in this room. Well, yeah, you know, there's a million Bobs in the world. Right, Rob? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, uh, so what are you getting when you get that? Is that proof that you're listening to a ghost? Not really. Um, you know, most you can do is try to sort it out from some of the other interference you get on there and think, well, that particular sound or that particular word we really can't identify as being radio or, you know, a, a dispatcher or something else like that, that maybe it is something coming through. Yeah. Now I wanted to transition back to shapeshifters. Now in your book, you talk about two different kinds of shapeshifters. You talk about internal shapeshifters versus external shapeshifters. And I, I, this is, we could really go on a tangent on this topic because this, this goes down a lot of different avenues. I, I would say like an, an external shapeshifter would be like your, like your Dracula's, your, vampires, your werewolves, your skinwalkers, right? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're, you're, you're going yeah, with, exactly. with an external? Yeah, when I talk about an external uh, shapeshift, I'm talking about the one that, you know, visibly you can see that it is no longer human, that it's something else. So, you know, the werewolf is probably the quintessential external shapeshifter. One minute it's a person, you know, next minute after a full moon or whenever you want to believe, it becomes a werewolf. It's, it's truly a wolf. Um, internal for me is... Is a is a change, a shift that incur that it occurs internally, and so it's mostly what I would say like a mental uh, change. And I think of, for instance, in my book, I talk about some cases of lycanthropy, where um, especially like from 18th century France and Germany, there was a lot of cases there where people believed that they had transformed into a werewolf, and when you look at them, they look just like you and me. I mean, they look totally normal, but they would be growling. They'd be running around on their hands and on their hands and legs, you know, like a, like on all fours. Uh, they'd snap at people. They'd bite. They'd bark. I mean, for every, they were acting totally out like they were a wolf, but yet there was no change. I mean, so they're going through basically a mental change. Um, now, somebody might say, well, that means they're just mentally ill. And, and yeah, I think that's probably true. But there's also cases where people have sort of shown a different um, face, and I'm putting face in quotes, I don't mean 
an actual face, but a different aspect to society. But within there's somebody else. Uh, and I, I sort of segued a little bit into, into the book about like serial killers and people like Ted Bundy and everything else who, you know, for all practical purposes, Ted Bundy appeared to people as just this, looked like a clean cut kind of young college kind of guy, college age guy. He was helpful. He helped people bring groceries in from a car and all this kind of stuff. But inside he was this statistic, brutal, you know, serial killer. Um, so how do you square that? Somehow there was some shift inside him that was telling us he was not what he appeared to be. He was a shapeshifter, but only internally. Uh, and so not known to the rest of us. You can't see it. That's so interesting. Now, are there other inter inter examples of internal shapeshifters? Yeah, I can think of one particularly from uh, right here in Ohio where I live. Um, there's a guy named Guy. <laughs> it's a guy named Guy. His first name is Guy, Guy Savelli. And Guy Savelli is a martial arts expert. He also does a lot of things with mind control and things like that. And he's worked with like U.S. Special Forces and Navy SEALs and, and things, um, training them to be able to do things with their mind in, in warfare. So, for instance, there was an experiment that he was involved in. He was like in, in an enclosed room at a military base. And they had a goat standing out in the yard like 50 yards away. He couldn't see the goat. But he just concentrated on the goat. He just, you know, concentrated. His idea was to see if he could knock the goat down. And he did. Suddenly the goat just collapsed after after a couple of minutes of concentration. Well, that's an introduction to Savelli. So Savelli was at a bar one time with one of his students. He teaches mind control, martial arts. And the student said that, that while they were in the bar, there was this drunk that just came up to them and just got in their face, you know, Guy and the student didn't know this drunk, but he was just some you know, belligerent big drunk. And he was saying stuff like, oh, I'm going to punch you out, and all, you know, for no reason, right? But Savelli just stood his ground and just looked at him, didn't say a word, just looked at him and continued to look at him, you know, just make eye contact and look at him. And the student said to me that what I saw, he said, I don't know how to explain it. He said, but I'm watching Guy staring at this drunk and the drunk is mouthing off and all of a sudden the drunk's face gets white and his eyes open wide and he kind of backs off and he said all i saw in savelli's face he said i don't know how to explain it but i saw the face of a tiger oh my god yeah yeah and then the drunk goes like okay okay man he backs off and that was it and then you know the student said everything was fine but he said what do you mean the face of a tiger he said well i don't explain i can't explain it i mean you know, Savelli wasn't growing fur and claws and fangs and all this stuff, but he said, but the image that was somehow projected through his face was a tiger. So somehow he has this inner ability, I guess, to to show the outside world something else that that he's not, like shape shifting, right? So that's a, that's a really pretty cool example, I thought, because that's I mean. It actually happened, you know. It's a real deal. <laughs> I I love I love psychic phenomena and like and and being able to channel like inner wisdom like that. And that's beyond inner wisdom. That's being able to channel like an inner animal. Like you know, like like, like he's showing like right. like that he's he's spiritually advanced. So he's not just like martial arts because I love martial arts too. So it's almost like he's past the level of martial arts to where like even like a Bruce Lee would be. You know what I mean? He's like mastered mind, body, and spirit to where he can project himself as his spirit animal. Does yeah, that make I sense? Think that's true. You know, I think it's true. And I have some other accounts in the book of uh, some Bushmen, you know, in Africa, in the Kalahari, who uh, 
talked about their experiences as shapeshifters. And what they say, it's the same kind of account. They said, there's these were accounts that were taken out of a different book or something, and I recorded them. But these guys would say that when they shapeshift, they said they know that they bring out, and they'll talk about the animal, they bring out the lion within them, or they bring out the tiger within them, or the gazelle, or whatever animal they're talking about. And they'll say that they, I can feel it. You know, I've got the heart of the lion. I've got the strength of the lion. I sound like a lion. Now, they're truly believing that. And yet anybody outside watching them wouldn't see a lion. You know, they would see them going through some maybe trance state or something like that. But they wouldn't see him turn into a lion. But the guy would say definitely that he had turned. He had transformed into a lion. And he knew he did. So, again, this is uh, all internal stuff. That's so interesting. Now, um, what would you say some examples are? I, I think we talked about this, but maybe some other examples of the external. Would, there, would you say like the skinwalkers and the berserk? Because I was going to ask you about berserkers and skinwalkers. Would those be uh, examples of, uh, of externals? Well, a skinwalker is an example of an external because they, you know, they truly, usually a skinwalker is conceived as being like a shaman, a Native American shaman who is capable of transforming, literally like a werewolf. He can transform himself into something else. Um, the berserkers, you know, were these uh, Scandinavian uh, warriors back like in the 12th century um, who were human and they were always human, but they belonged to different clans. They belonged to a wolf clan or a bear clan. And what they would do is they would wear the hides of these animals in battle. They'd wear the hides. Sometimes they'd wear the head mounted on their, on their head. Uh, and before going into battle, they would work themselves up. They'd get into a trance state. And a lot of times that was uh, augmented by uh, hallucinogenics from the environment, you know, magic mushrooms, you know, whatever. And they would take these things. So they'd be in a drugged, trance-like trans state, believing that they had converted themselves, transformed into bears or wolves. And when they went into battle, they were unbelievably ferocious. Uh, and you could not train them. You couldn't stop them. The kings of those times that used these guys, they put them up front as shock troops. And they would just say, okay, let the berserkers go in first. Everybody else stay back because they're going to be swinging swords and axes and they'll take down anything in their way. Um, they became so dangerous because they were uncontrollable that the kings actually banned all that. And they said, okay, next time we fight each other, none of us are using berserkers. <laughs> you know? so, and from that, though, we get the, you know, the American word of berserk, you know, going berserk, which means literally going crazy, right? That's where it comes from, the berserkers. So That's so interesting. That's, that's so interesting. Now, I wanted to ask about shapeshifters in religion, because uh, I know you said that they, they could say that Jesus was an example of a shapeshifter, but I was seeing if you could explain that and maybe some other examples of shapeshifters in religion. You know, there's a theologian uh, from a university in the Netherlands that was translating an ancient text that was at the Morgan Library in New York. And the text was written in Coptic, you know, the ancient, one of the earliest, uh, one of the earliest Christian sects were the Coptics, uh, were the Copts in Egypt. They're still around today. But he had this ancient Coptic text. And as he was translating it, it was the part of the Bible where, um, Judas is going to betray Jesus. And so he goes to the Jews that want Jesus arrested and says to him, you know, I'll be in the garden and uh, you guys follow me. I'll point out who he is and you arrest him. And so they say, well, how, how do we know who he is? Okay. So 
in the normal Christian Bible, it says something like, oh, I'll kiss him on the cheek and you'll know. But in this translation, which is not part of the Bible, the way it's translated by this theologian uh, from the Netherlands is that the answer from Judas, well, the, the, the Jews say, how will we know him? Because it's confusing. Sometimes when we see him, he appears old. Sometimes he appears young. Sometimes he appears ruddy, you know, I mean, sort of like a red complexion. Sometimes he appears pale. Sometimes he appears thin. So they, they say that he, he appears to them in many forms. They don't know the real form. That's a very interesting text. Um, you know, it's certainly not in the Bible. It hasn't been approved for that, but it's, it's something to think about. But if you look at what's in the Bible, you have a case where um, once Jesus rises from the dead in the Bible, uh, there's two apostles, two of his former disciples walking down the road, and they're talking about him, saying, oh, it's terrible. It's only a couple of days after he dies. Next thing you know, the Bible says, you know, he's right there. He just suddenly, a third person suddenly appears and starts walking with them and talking with them. And they don't recognize him. Now, he's only been dead like three days uh, and rose. So it was like four days, right? And they spent something like two and a half, almost three years with him, 24-7, wandering around Judea, you know, preaching to people. They don't recognize him. How do they not recognize him? And he walks all the way to the town of Emmaus with them. And it's only when they're having dinner and he breaks bread at the dinner that they recognize him at that point and say, oh, this is Jesus. And when they do recognize him, he disappears. So... There's, there's other points. There's some Old Testament examples in the Bible that are there. Um, the book of Daniel talks about a uh, King Nebuchadnezzar who somehow, I don't recall the entire story, but basically got on the wrong side of God. <laughs> and for that, he was cursed and he was turned into a beast. And it says that he went out and he was on all fours eating grass and things like that. So there's, you know, right from the Bible, there's examples of shapeshifters. what I thought.
Well, can you hi. hear me now? I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh my God, that was crazy. I, I don't know yeah. what happened. I can edit that out. Sorry about that. Um, where right. were we at? I don't know. I I gave a long-winded, <laughs> a long-winded yeah, story. Huh? I think you're with um, shapeshifters and and religion, and so uh, you gave yeah. an example of Jesus, and I think that's interesting. It makes me think, like, well, why why were the, why would you think they were seeing him as like different people? What do you think that says about who he might have been? Well, so there's two ways of looking at that. I mean, it could have very well been that that he did shapeshift to be able to present himself to different audiences because in Judea, you know, there are a lot of different types. There are a lot of different nationalities there. And, uh, you know, you had Romans, you had Jews, you had a lot of different people. So it could be maybe that was his way of getting his word out, sort of being able to not blend in, but be more acceptable maybe to his audience. The other thing is it might be, you know, it's the translation uh, and the theologian who's translating it, it could possibly just be metaphor, meaning that, he didn't really change, but that he seemed to appeal to everybody, that everybody who saw him or heard him, um, you know, felt attracted or recognized him or something. But it sounds it sounds to me more like a shape-shifting thing. And I got to tell you, um, a Catholic uh, journal, Catholic Herald, uh, didn't interview me. They uh, reviewed my book. They reviewed shapeshifters. They gave it a pretty decent read. I don't know why they reviewed shapeshifters. It doesn't sound like something a Catholic journal would uh, review, but they did. Uh, but the only thing is they disagreed with me about, you know, perhaps suggesting that Jesus could have been a shapeshifter. That's so interesting. Can you still hear me? Because my camera went out again. Yeah, I okay. can hear you. Okay, sorry. I, I, I have to go like this. I've never had. I mean, I've never had problems like this. That I think that that's interesting, though. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, where, where were we at here? Okay, so what about we talked about shamanism? What about Neolithic hunter magic? Right. So I was talking about how early shapeshifters appear, and that Neolithic uh, era, there was a cave painting that was found in a cave in France from the Neolithic era that shows a, a person on sort of a person that looks half like a deer. It's clearly a human being, but it's stand, you know, standing on, on standing up, but sort of uh, arms bent, looks more like a uh, back bent, kind of like a deer. The legs and arms look more like deer limbs. But the interesting thing about it is that instead of having hoofs, which you know that's what deer have, right? It had fingers and toes. In this painting. Now, deer don't have that. Humans do. And it also had antlers, which humans don't have, but deers do. And the eyes on this uh, creature were central, like ours, in the center of the head rather than to the side, uh, as, as typical in a deer. So what a lot of anthropologists believe is that this is a representation of a shaman who was doing um, rituals and, and magic and all this designed to um, designed for hunters in the tribe or the clan to make themselves feel and believe that they had transformed into deer so that then when they go out to hunt the deer, it'd be easier for them because if they look like deer, act like deer and think they're deer, and if they truly believe they became deer, how easy is it to get up to a deer and kill it, right? That's so, so interesting. Yeah, so early back as magic, you know, way back. 
Uh, one, the one thing, I don't know if you can see my, uh, my, my virtual background, but my virtual background is of an Anunnaki. Um, and they, they were portrayed with wings, which makes me think, did, did people think that the, that the ancient Anunnaki could have been some kind of shapeshifters? Because um, depending on what text you translate, you know, which could be like the Sumerian cuneiform, um, you know, they, they said that, that they were those from that heaven came. So they could have been some kind of angelic creature or, or angelic being or um, or maybe some kind of disadvanced human with the capabilities to shapeshift. Did you ever think about that? Well, not really, except that, I mean, I know that a lot of the, um, uh, I don't want to call it mythology, but let's say folklore mythology, I guess, from the different cultures have similar similar um, deities, if you will, or entities that they believe have come from some, you know, celestial source, like heaven or whatever, and that then transform. So it's not, it's not unusual. I mean, it goes way back to ancient Greece. You know, the shapeshifters in ancient Greece were the gods. Yeah, and they would come down and they'd come down in human form or other kinds of form to interact with humans. So it's, Zeus, it's a long Zeus, story. Zeus was a shapeshifter, right? Yeah, Zeus was like the champion shapeshifter. <laughs> I think in my book, I listed maybe 12 different types of shapeshifting and there's probably even more, you know. Um, and, you know, at first I thought it seems like whenever he did it, it, it was always basically to have his way with some woman. Um and I always said, well, why would you, why would you shapeshift from sort of a you know human god form into like a swan or an ox or whatever, you know, whatever it was? Well, then I kind of thought about it and realized that the reason for that is that these gods, especially Zeus, being the god of gods, you know, the supreme god, if you will, um, were so were so powerful and so dazzling that human beings couldn't actually behold them in their God form, in their normal form, because it would kill them. It'd be, too, it'd be too awesome for them. Awesome in the sense of terrifying and everything else. They couldn't handle it. So therefore, they had to change into something else to be you know, more accessible to humanity. Yeah. Um, and then what about, uh, uh, there would be shapeshifters in ancient Egypt too, right? Now, what makes the one that, they, that comes to the top of my head is Thoth, because Thoth had the head of an ibis. Um, but so, but there, he's always portrayed as some kind of like bird type god or something like that. Is that kind of where you're going with that, or are there other shapeshifters in ancient Egypt? Well, technically, the Egyptian uh, gods weren't really shapeshifters because the form that you see them in, you know, which is frequently a combination of animal human form, like you mentioned. Uh, my favorite one is is a Tauret, who has the uh, it's a woman has the head of a hippo, the torso of a woman and the tail of an alligator, or what was it, crocodile in the Nile, crocodile, uh, which is very interesting, have three forms, right? But that was the way they, that was the way the Egyptians believed they appeared, but they didn't change into anything else. They had that form and that was it. Um, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't shapeshift into some other type of a, of a creature or something. But I thought it was interesting because it's sort of like the beginning, right? They're what they're called therianthropic forms. They go halfway. They become something half and half, but they don't make a complete shift to anything. I, I, I think I agree. That's really interesting. Um, one one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and this kind of gets into like the alien culture, is um, the reptilian shapeshifters. Like, you know, that goes back to like, I guess, I, I don't know if it's really started with David Icke, but, you know, I know him and like the shaman Credo Mudwa talked about reptilian shapeshifters. And, 
you know, um, rep, rep, the, the thing of reptilians. I'm just wondering, is there any historical context for reptilians and reptilian shapeshifters? No. <laughs> just point blank. No. I, I mean, didn't think so. Yeah, I mean, so Ike, so Ike had that. I think he's probably, you know, maybe he didn't quite develop the, the whole idea, but he certainly is the promoter of it. And the story, you know, as if your audience doesn't know it, is that there was reptilian, there are aliens that came from some star, uh, star somewhere millions and millions of years ago. And they came to Earth and they had the ability to shapeshift. They are reptilians. So they shapeshift from a reptile form to whatever. And apparently, according to the theory, is they came to Earth and they basically, they mated with, you know, whatever sort of proto-humans were running around on the planet millions of years ago. But they created this DNA strain, this genetic strain of um, a reptilian alien shapeshifters. So that, that's been passed down for the millennia. Um, and according to that, there are people today who look like you and me, human beings, who carry this reptilian alien strain and are capable of shapeshifting into a reptile form. And in his theory, there are so many like celebrities and people of power that he says are reptilian alien shapeshifters. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II just passed away. She was supposed to have been one. Uh, Barack Obama. There's a lot of like, you know, uh, famous singers and actors and athletes. And so, but there's no, there, there's zero history behind that or zero evidence behind it. So, you know, I don't know what to make of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah. I mean, that's if there was some little shred of something where you can say, well, you know, we found this, uh, this relic from millions of years ago and we don't know what it is and you know it's metal that could be from an alien ship or anything but doesn't seem to be yeah i agree um but i was going to ask you what are your thoughts on um the the recent accounts of like dogman like it seems like it's becoming more and more popular people are telling a lot of stories about dogman um and i know you you investigate the paranormal as well like have you had any experience with like investigating dogman and like what are your thoughts on the stories now of Dogman as compared to Werewolf? Not from what I understand, the Dogman is just the American name for Werewolf. You know, so it's it's kind of like the same thing. But then if you talk to like some Dogman researchers, they'll tell you that there's different kinds of um, classifications of Dogman. You know, so like so you know they'll say there's one that kind of looks more like a um, I can't remember like a I, I don't know. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm I'm certainly not a, an expert on on Dogman, but I do you know I heard something about it. But the, all the stories that I've heard and what people have told me from what they know is that it's it's not like a werewolf because a werewolf would be a complete transformation, you know, total. Um, what I've heard about dog dogmen is that they are literally sort of like the Egyptian forms, like half and half. Um, all the stories I've heard about were humans uh, in every aspect that had dog head. So, you know, I don't know what to make of that. But I do know that a lot of these tales are coming from sort of the Midwest area here, the upper Midwest, which is not too far from where I am, sort of like up in the woods, Minnesota, Wisconsin, all those areas. Um, and then down through maybe the central, like Kansas, Nebraska. That seems to be where a lot of them are being, uh, where being seen or where people are telling stories about them. But I don't have too much more information on that. I don't, I don't know a whole lot more about them and haven't really researched them. 
Yeah, I, I'm 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 somewhat near you. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So oh, yeah. I, I I hear it, it, it's in this area. It, you have a a real real paranormal area in in this. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called the Chestnut Ridge. Did you ever did you ever hear that? No. It's 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 a it's it's an area in it, 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 it's a couple counties in Pennsylvania, and it goes into West Virginia, and it's supposedly really highly active for like. Um, UFOs, Bigfoot, cryptids, um, the whole, the whole smorgasbord. And you get like these really active areas like around the world. Sometimes they're like the areas like this, or sometimes they could be like triangle areas. Like, have you, have you ever done any research on that? No, but it's interesting that you're saying that because um, I was teaching at Ohio University on the campus at Athens for several years. And Athens is in Appalachian, Ohio, you know, it's Southeast. Um, and it's in that area where there's a lot of sightings of what they call the Ohio grass man, which is basically like our version of Bigfoot. Um, every, we have a different name for it, but it's all in that area. And when I was at Athens, uh, a lot of my ghost stories and everything and hauntings come from that Athens area with the idea of that area being a place where maybe uh, several or more ley lines, you know, converge or cross over, meaning it's got a, a area of um, power, you know, creative power, creative energy. So um, it kind of fits into that zone that you're talking about. And of course, Mothman is right down, right down the road from Athens in West Virginia. Yeah, it's weird. Like people, for the people that don't know, like if you're in Pittsburgh, like if you're like, there's a point in Pittsburgh where you can. You can literally go. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, you could you could be in Pittsburgh, and then like 15 minutes later, you could be in Ohio, and 15 minutes later, you can be in West Virginia, depending on the direction on where you go. So I, you know, if I'm at the end of Pittsburgh, I could be 15 minutes. I could be kind of in your neck of the woods, well, maybe not exactly in your neck of the woods, but I could definitely be in Ohio, or I could kind of shoot over into West Virginia. It's really weird how the states connect like that, but. What's interesting is, like you said, is it's it's very highly active for a lot of paranormal activity, like you yeah. said, Mothman and all that stuff. But this is what I wanted to ask you. Like, I know you, I think you talked about this in another podcast. So you mentioned the ley lines, and I think that's that's a good. There's something with energy, right? But do you think that's kind of where portals would open up, like, and that, that these things are maybe coming out of a portal? Yeah, well, that's that's a theory because the you know the ley lines that people talk about basically they're lines of of energy. Uh, and there's people that have mapped them around the world and showed where ley lines are. And a lot of times where they, where they cross over or converge or where there's, you know, more than one, where there's sort of a congregation of them, people say, well, that might be an area for a portal, uh, which, you know, what is a portal? Um, an opening to another dimension? And that's what I think, because we're talking about energy. We're talking about maybe just moving into another sort of energy field another you know which would be another dimension um so that's that's essentially what they are and i think yeah i think um a lot of what are called portals probably lie along uh, ley lines i would agree now what are your thoughts on uh parallel realities like because like if if these things are coming from another reality do you think that, there, that there, there's something like parallel realities could possibly exist yeah, I've been reading um, a lot of quantum mechanics and you know quantum physics, and I'll tell you, I only understand you know, probably 0.3% of what I read. You know, really complicated stuff, right? But what the uh, what the basic premise of is, is that 
what we call a universe, uni meaning one, you know, is is totally not true. That we live in a multiverse where there's a multitude, an infinite number of of realities, if you want to call it that, all existing at the same time, the same place, like almost like layers or like uh, peeling an onion, you know, layer after layer after layer, uh, but they're all inter interconnect. So actually, I think that that might be one explanation for the ghosts might be. And when I give lectures about ghosts, I mention that exactly what you're talking about, because I think if there, if there are parallel universes, parallel realities, whatever you want to call them, um, is it possible? And parallel is not even a good word because that almost implies that you can see them lying side by side. That's not how it works. It's like energy levels. But in any case, if that is true, then is it possible that under the right circumstances, and, and I don't know what those circumstances would be, but that our reality um, sort of bumps up against another one and that for a, a second or two or whatever, there's like this interchange where we can get a glimpse into that reality and they can get a glimpse into ours. So we get a glimpse into theirs and we see something and we go, oh, a ghost. And on that side, when this interaction takes place, they're looking into our reality and they're going, oh, a ghost. Yeah. So, I mean, it could very well be that what we think are ghosts are actually entities that exist in another uh, reality different from ours. So do you think maybe the soul definitely moved? Do you, I, I wanted to ask you this, like, are you, are you skeptical on the fact that the soul moves on or do you believe that maybe the soul moves on and, and that we kind of just like when we die, we, you know, they say energy can't be destroyed. It kind of just kind of moves on. So maybe the energy moves on to another plane of existence, which would be uh, an, an, um, the multi, another, re, another reality inside the multiverse, which would be, um, you know, uh, just another form of existence without this physical body or what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, I agree with that pretty much. Um, I don't know about, you know, the word soul when I hear that to me implies like a real religious connotation. I'd prefer to say, and, it's, and that's fine. People can say that way, but you know, spirit, soul, uh, energy, whatever you want to call it. But there's something I believe within us that is eternal. And I think it's because we are all energy. And as we said, you know, you cannot create nor destroy energy. All you can do is transform it from one form into another. All the energy in the world, in the universe, in the multiverse is constant. That's what Einstein proved. So, so what happens to the energy that is us when we die? Well, we know that some of it literally is car becomes carbon atoms, and we literally do push up daisies, and we literally do become daisies. But, you know, what, ha I mean, what happens to the whole quantum of us that's energy? So is it possible that part of us, whatever that is, goes on in some way that might still have some consciousness um, and so therefore some form of existence, even though, as you say, it would be non-corporeal, no body, right? Um, I think it's very possible. And I think that's that other wherever it goes might be religious people's concept of what heaven is, you know? Um, they always talk about heaven. Well, you don't need your body and all that stuff. Well, no, because your energy. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. And do you think there's been, I, I feel, I feel like there, this is like, that, that there's been like tests that we, that, that prove that we are energy, that we, that like there's electricity in our body. And that mm -hmm. I, like the fact that we re, that we can get electrocuted in water, 
you know, makes me think that we have like an electric charge in our body. What are your yeah. thoughts? Uh, there's no question. We're electric. <laughs> I mean, science has proven that we are electric. Uh, you know, maybe not like, uh, you know, like, like an outlet or electric generator or something, but yeah, we, we have a charge. That's so it's so interesting, and it makes that makes me believe that that, that there's something more to this. Like that there's a I, I'm always like wondering about like our reality and what what it is our reality. Like I've gotten a lot into you know like I don't know if you've gotten into this, but I, I definitely like look into it. It's like simulation theory and the fact that you know could this re- whole reality be programmed like or could it not even program, but it's, it's, it's actually like a, a simulated, like almost like the game the Sims. Like, because if you think about it, a lot of weird things happen, like the Mandela effect. And, and it's, it's not just that it's a lot more than that, but like, have you ever questioned this? And like, have you ever thought about it? And what, what are your thoughts? If you, if you, I mean, I know you didn't write a book on it, but I, but yeah. I know like, I know you study the paranormal. So I, I, I'm just, and I know you're very intelligent. So I, I just figured I would get your thoughts on it just to see what you think. Yeah, well, you know, you're sort of talking about the Matrix, right? The movie The Matrix, where there's, uh, you know, what's what's real and who's pulling the strings, and is there something behind it all? Um, that's what it sounds like you're talking about, you know, like, yeah, are we really are we living a, a simulacrum of something, or is this a real real life? I don't know. I that's I mean, boy, it's such a deep question, right? Um, I, it, it goes back to the really basic theological questions like is there a god if there is a god then that's who's pulling the strings and and is masterminding everything supposedly right if there's no god then are, is there somebody else in control is or you know uh, are we in control ourselves do we create our own realities and project our own realities i mean there's some philosophers that say yeah you know my reality is different from yours right now rob you're in pittsburgh i'm here you know um for all I know, you don't exist. For all you know, I don't exist. We can both be holograms or something right now, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's weird. But I, I don't have any much deeper thought than to say, uh, yeah, it's a very confusing, very deep question. It would take a lot. But it, it's yeah. interesting to speculate for sure, you know? But and also and also just to finish up on that before we we finish up is like it's it's like it's true that our thoughts can create our reality to a certain extent. Like if you meditate on something or you um you you know even people like listen to binaural beats and stuff like that, and it seems like that our thoughts can kind of manipulate reality to a certain extent. Like you're, it's not going to make you a millionaire overnight. Like I've never heard that, but it seems like we can manipulate our reality to a certain extent. Have you have you looked into this? Oh yeah, definitely. I think I think you can. Now you can go to the extreme. If you have somebody who is mentally ill, they're recreating their reality all the time, and it's not the same as ours. But then you have to ask yourself: This is another question: Are they really mentally ill, or are they in the right reality, and the rest of us are in the wrong reality? You know. So, <laughs> so but um, yeah, no. It, it's uh, those questions are just. Uh, very interesting, but confusing. And I don't know if we ever have the answer to any of this stuff. I I agree. Well, this has been amazing. Um, If you could tell everybody, uh, sorry about the tech difficulties. It's just this program I'm using, but um, if you could tell everybody where to find, thank you. And and if you could tell everybody where to find your book and your website and, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Well, so have I. It's been a pleasure, Rob. Thanks. Yeah. Um, the easiest thing uh, is, you know, my website is johnkachuba.com, as you mentioned, J-O-H-N, 
K-A-C-H-U-B-A. I probably should have put my last name on here instead of just John. Uh, but anyway, johnkachuba.com. You can get my books through there, or you, I mean, you can certainly get them in bookstores. That's where I'd like you to get them. Uh, you can also get them on Amazon. Um, a lot of online vendors will have my books. On my website, though, is my schedule of appearances and things like that. So you can see if I'm going to be in your neighborhood giving a talk or on one of your favorite radio shows or podcasts or something like that. So, All right. Well, then, until next time.